hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that, he, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God, or whoever is born of God, we could say, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We continue our study through 1 John, and we have been seeing that there are uh, three main tests that John is giving to ask the believers, to those who profess to belong to Christ, to see if these things be true of their life. God wants his people to be assured, if they are a true Christian, to be assured that they have eternal life. This is, I think, his main purpose as he writes this epistle. And we've been looking at certain tests that he gives because God's fingerprints will be upon the lives of all of those who belong to him. So they will be a people who are progressing in holiness or righteousness Not perfectly, but they're seeking to become more like Christ, to be holy. They are seeking also to understand who Christ is, and they have an orthodox view of Christ. They have a view of Christ that is in accordance with the revelation that God has given in his word. That the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ, came into this world, was born of the Virgin Mary. He is the Christ. He is the Jesus of Nazareth. He was a historic person who lived in time and history and gave his life on the cross and was raised again. And so there will be orthodox views of those who truly belong to Christ. And then the one that we again are looking at today is that the mark of a child of God is that he loves those who are born of God. He loves the people of God. And Each of these is repeated three times in 1 John. And as we come to this passage we're at today, this is in the section that is the third uh, test that is given about this test of love. Love for the brethren. Starts back in verse 7. Let us, beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So this will be true of those who belong to God and have been redeemed by Christ. A genuine faith will manifest itself in love for the brethren. So we find here a couple more tests that we're going to look at today uh, that show this genuine uh, faith. The first is the profession test for loving God. Now, John, as he is writing, he is convinced of this. As he says in verse 19, we love him, we love because... He first loved us. This will be true, that we love. We love God, and we love our neighbor. Uh, We even love our enemies, as we are called to do that. But especially in the book of 1 John, 
We love those who have been born of God. We love the brethren. And so he gives this another kind of a twist to this test, and it's called, I've called it the profession test for loving God. And it's in verse uh, 20. If someone says that I love God and he hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? We all know people like this, don't we? We know many people who will make a profession that they know God or a profession that they know Jesus Christ. Well, of course, yeah, I I believe in Jesus. And there is a, a profession that comes from their lips. But as we've seen already in 1 John, John tells us that it's possible to profess something, but it's a lie. Um, One commentator said, we find in 1 John three black lies. And we've already seen some of this in 1 John 1 and verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him, with God, and we walk in the darkness, we lie. We lie, and we do not practice the truth. Then again in chapter 2 and verse 4, he who says, I know him, I know God, and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And we, we find a handful of these. And here, here is another one. If we say that we love God, that we love him, and yet we hate our brother, we are, John, very clear, we're a liar. We are a liar. So we learn here, don't we, that, that talk uh, is cheap. Paul says, or John says, that True love for God is going to be manifested in those around us who also belong to Christ. God is someone that we do not see. How can you say you love this God who you cannot see when you don't love his children who you do see? And so here is a profession, a test for this profession. Do I know Christ? Do I know the true and the living God? Because talk is cheap. If I said to you, I love my wife, and you were my neighbor, and you noticed that my wife was always mowing the grass on the hot summer days of July. And you also noticed that my wife, um, not only that, she would take out the garbage every week, and that my wife was always cleaning out the gutters, and my wife was changing the oil in the car, And all the while, you would see me in a hammock in the backyard every every once in a while getting up to practice my golf swing. Now, what would you think about me when I would say that I love my wife? You would think, yeah, right. Now, some of you women here, you might like to change the oil, and you just insist on that, so that's fine. But if, if a husband says he loves his wife, but doesn't lift a finger to help her, we would question his words. We, we might say with John, I think, I think you are a liar. And so this is what John is telling us here. If we say that we love God, but we really have no interest in his people, we don't make it a point to assemble together with them, we really don't have time for them. We really don't care about the one another's that we find in the scriptures that we're called to love one another, encourage one another, and, and be there for others and serve them and use our gifts. Then we have reason to really question whether this is true of us. 
We may say that we love God, that we love Christ, but if we really don't love his church, if we really don't love his people, then we ought to examine our life. I've said often that if we love Christ, if we truly love Christ, we will love his people, those that he gave his life for. Well, secondly, we see here, love to God is inseparable from brotherly love. Love to God is more than lip service, and love to God is inseparable from brotherly love. So he says in verse 21, and this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. These two things always will go together. It's the both sides of the same coin, love for God, love for my Christian brothers and sisters in the Lord. And he goes on further, I think, to confirm this as we get into chapter 5. And he says there in verse 1, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten. So here are two things that are a result of what Paul, John says is the new birth. John speaks a lot about new birth, being begotten, being born again, being born from above, both in his gospel and in First John. And here he says that a genuine faith has come as uh, evidenced by a faith and a trust in Jesus Christ. Someone who's born of God believes that Jesus... This Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. That's what the word Christ means, that he is the anointed one. He's the promised Messiah of the centuries of the prophets who spoke and foretold of the coming of the Messiah. And he who confesses that Jesus is this Christ, this is a sign that he has been born of God. And so there is this personal faith in this Christ, and there is this personal union that one has with Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth, the promised Messiah. Down in verse 5, he'll also identify Jesus as the Son of God. He's not a mere man. He's not just somebody that was born there in Bethlehem, but he was the pre-incarnate, pre-existent Christ, the Son of God. And so John says, those who are born of God are those who have faith in Christ. Now, I want us to note something here. The way in which John writes this and the grammar that John uses here, he is saying that the new birth is what produces faith. The reason that someone believes is because they have been born of God. And we see this back in chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he who is right if you know if you know that he is righteous you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him or we could say has been born of him and so righteousness is the fruit of the new birth here faith is the fruit of the new birth it is a result of the regenerating work of the spirit of god in a person's life If you are a believer today, you have come to faith in Christ. This is a direct result of the ministry of the Holy Spirit who has so worked in your heart to show you your own sinfulness, 
your undoneness before a holy God, but also at the same time to show you the beauty and the sufficiency of Christ to save you. And you have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of that has been worked out and accomplished by the work of the Spirit in your life. We believe because God, by his grace, has caused us to be born again. So even our faith, the New Testament tells us, is a gift from God. It's not something you can boast in. It is a gift that God has graciously granted to you. And praise be to God that he has been pleased to do this. But the second thing that he says, another fruit of the new birth, is that not only do we believe in Jesus, the Christ, we have been, that we have been born of God, but he goes on and says, and everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. Or we could put it this way. The ESV translates this, that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father, or loves him, loves the Father, loves whoever has been born of him. Doesn't that just make sense? That if we have been born of God, born again by the Spirit of God, that we will love others that have been born again by the Spirit of God. They too are a part of the family of God. We are children of God. And therefore, John argues that this is just the outcoming, the outworking of the Spirit of God in the new birth that we will love those who have been birthed by God. So John is convinced that this new birth produces something in the hearts of the sinner and brings about a new creation, takes out a stony heart, gives a heart of flesh, and a part of that new heart is that they will love the people of God. And this will be the work, again, of the Spirit of God in our lives. So we need to be very careful as believers that we do not separate what John, by the Spirit, has joined together. Love for God, love for his people. These will go together. And we know that there are many people who will say things like, well, I believe in Jesus. Well, I believe he's the son of God. I believe that he died for sinners, and I love him. But in reality, they have no love for the people of God. No interest in really being a part of the body of Christ and serving and ministering to the needs of others. Really no heart to worship with the people of God. John is, again, very clear. If it's lip service, then we're deceiving ourselves. Because everyone who is born of God will love those who have been born of God. Now we notice as we go through verse John that John puts a lot of stress on this. In John's mind, there is, this is something that is vitally important. And we need to see that. It's emphasized over and over again. We are called to love one another. Why do we need these reminders? Because even though we are saints, we are still sinners, aren't we? We still have remaining corruption that is in us. And we need to be reminded of this again and again. God has been gracious and merciful to me. He has separated my sins from me as far as the east is from the west. I have been forgiven. He has extended grace to me, and I'm called to do the same. I am called to do the same to my brothers and sisters who sometimes are hard to love, and we are sometimes, aren't we? And we're called to love one another. 
So what we find in the New Testament are words like, the, like these. This emphasis on being forbearing with one another. And a very important one, forgiving one another. Being long-suffering with one another. If he has so loved us, John says we ought to love one another as well. Secondly, there's a second test, and this is the assurance test for loving the children of God. We see this in verses 2 through 5. Paul says, or excuse me, John says in verse 2, by this we know. This is a word that's used again and again in 1 John. By this we know. For a Christian, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. All right, so if a sign of grace is that we love the brethren, and this is a sign of the new birth, how do I know whether or not I love the brethren? It's a little bit of a twist from previous statements where John says if we love the brethren, then we have assurance that we know God, we belong to him. But here we might ask the question, how do I know whether or not I love the brethren? Well, John, first of all, says that loving God and keeping his commandments. By this we know that we love the children of God when, here it is, when we love God and we keep his commandments. So first and primary is love to God. This really is the motive behind loving one another. We love God. He first loved us, and if he's loved me, then I can love my brothers and sisters in the Lord. So we love God. This is how we know that we love our brother. We love God, but also we keep his commandments. This is the directive for love. The motive of love is love to God. The directive of love is by keeping his commandments. Notice it's plural. He doesn't say just this command to love your brother, but to love and to keep the commandments that God has given to us. And in the context here, whatever God's word says about loving one another, this is what we seek to obey in terms of loving our brethren. So loving our brothers and sisters will be doing what the Father commands us to do in terms of the body of Christ. Loving the children of God will be governed by the word, by the commandments that God has given to us. Love is a word that is often misconstrued, you know, in the culture and even many so-called professing churches. You know, love is love, and and you can love whoever you want. Um, And we have to accept uh, people just as they are. But here, loving others is going to be dictated by the word of God. That will be what helps us to love our brothers and sisters and to direct them according to God's word that he has given to us. So no true love is demonstrated um, in keeping God's commandments that does not heed to the word of God. Jesus said that if anyone loves me, he will keep my commandments. And he who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. 
So verse 3, he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. If we've come to know the love of God in our life, in our hearts, then we will keep his commandments. And John wants to give us a clarification about God's commandments. Notice what he says here in verse 3. And his commandments are not what? They're not burdensome. Do you ever think of the commandments of God sometimes in that way? That his commands are burdensome? Sometimes we might think that they are hard and that they are difficult. But John wants us to know, he gives us a clarification, that the commands that God gives to his people, they're not burdensome. They are not heavy. They are not unreasonable. They're not grievous. They're not severe. Even though this is sometimes the way that we think, we sometimes say to ourselves, I could never do that. But God will never give us something that we cannot do. They will not be burdensome to us. He will give us the grace to do them. So Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. But Paul tells us in Philippians 4.13 that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You remember the temptation that Satan presented to Eve in the garden as he came to her. And said, shall you not eat of all these trees that are given in this garden? Suggesting uh, to her that somehow God's withholding something good from her. And she said, no, we can eat of all the trees except the one in the middle of the garden. We're not supposed to eat or even touch that, which God didn't say. But what Satan is suggesting is that God is withholding something good from you, Eve. Here is this tree in the middle of the garden And it will make you wise. You will be able to determine what is good. You will be able to determine your own life. And so he plants these thoughts in the mind of Eve that God is somehow being unfair with you. He's being stingy with you. He's withholding something that is good for you. And as we know, she took the bait. That is never true of our God. He never withholds. He always does good to his people and his his commandments are for our good for our benefit they're not a burden but they are really for our blessing they are a blessing and what we find as we listen to the lie of the evil one is that it makes us to think that God is a killjoy the sin is really where liberty is found and freedom and happiness going our own way But what we find out is just the opposite of that. The way of the transgressor is what? It is hard. The way of the transgressor is hard. It's not a good way. So we read in Proverbs 22, 5, Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. He who guards his soul will be far from them. The way of the perverse is going to lead to thorns and snares. It will be hard. The way of the lazy man is like a hedge of thorns, but the way of the upright is a highway. Tim read for us from Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who walks in the law of the Lord. He's going to be like a tree that is planted by living waters, and it's going to be, bring forth fruit in its season. What a beautiful picture 
as we would obey God and follow him. It's for our good, and it brings blessing, and it brings fruitful, fruitfulness in our lives in contrast to those who walk amongst the perverse. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is that which enlightens the eyes. It helps us to see, gives us direction. It's like gold, and it's to be desired like gold. And by the word of God, the servant is warned. He's warned of danger. But also he is, find, finds that in keeping them, there is a great reward. How we need to understand this as believers. What God commands us is for our good. It is for our blessing. It is not burdensome, but it is good. And what we find is the way of the transgressor, that's a hard road. Sin always takes us further than we wanted to go, keeps us longer than we wanted to stay, and it's going to cost us more than we ever wanted to pay. And we see that over and over again in the lives of individuals and sometimes in our own. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. One of the things that the Son of God does is free us from ourself and free us from our own carnal loves and lusts that take us away from the greatest and the best of all beings. And so here is this wonderful liberating truth that God's word, God's commandments are not burdensome, they are for our good. So Jesus says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, sometimes you say, well, that burden, that yoke feels pretty heavy. Think about the yoke of sin. And you look at the yoke of Christ. It is easy and it is light and it is good. For our Savior will lead us in the path of righteousness for his own name's sake. And then we see Another encouragement for keeping God's word here in verses 4 and 5. For whatever is born of God or whoever is born of God overcomes the world. Here's encouragement again for keeping God's word. Mature love for God and for his people. Seeking to love and obey and do what God has commanded us to do. Learning that it's not burdensome. Here is this promise that those who are born of God... They overcome the world. The world in view here is, I think, the world that he talks about in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. A world that has enmity toward God, a world that is opposed to God, the ungodly of this world who, who seem to rule the day. This world is passing away, John tells us. And if we be in Christ and we have been born of him, We overcome the world. We overcome this world. And we know as believers that, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us, that the world seeks to conform us to its way of thinking, to its way of living. And we sometimes, we listen to that and we are sucked into that. But here's the promise that we have overcome the world, that it will not succeed, that we will overcome this fallen world though it sometimes seems attractive, that there is this promise that God is at work in us so that we will overcome. Galatians 1.4 says that Christ 
gave himself for our sins, for this one, one of the purposes is here given, that he might deliver us from this present evil world or this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. As we think of this salvation that we know in Christ, there are three ways in which God is saving us. He's saving us. He saved us in the past. He justified us. and We've been reconciled and made right with God. But presently, he's also now saving us. He's sanctifying us, saving us from ourselves, saving us from this world in which we live. And there's a future day when he will save us and consummate this salvation that we have in in his presence. So how does he do this effectively? Well, notice we have overcome the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And what is our faith in? Verse 5, who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So the people of God are those who are not trusting in themselves to overcome this world. They are looking to the one who has already overcome the world. He has triumphed over Satan. He he has crushed the head of the serpent. And Jesus says in John 16, 33, These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. This is a once-for-all victory that Christ has won on the cross. So F.F. Bruce says, By their faith in Jesus as the Son of God, they are so united with him that his victory has become theirs. They conquer by his power. John says, This world, it is passing away. And we have overcome the world. We belong to Christ. We belong to a world that is yet to come. And it has been won for us by Jesus Christ. These words by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Words appropriate for us today in light of this week. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your toil is not in vain. God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we come to an end of this text here today, we take great encouragement to know God's grace is at work in us to help us to love God, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, to know that by his grace we are overcomers, to know that whatever he has commanded us to do is for our good, for our benefit, and it's not burdensome. He will enable us to do what he's commanded us to do. Shall we pray?